Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we're going to do a little bit of a throwback. The last several months, we've answered a lot of email uh, questions uh, that have mm-hmm. led us down paths that... Uh, we want, never wanted to go down. <laughs> but in, um, in several episodes uh, ago or many episodes in the first season specifically, you would talk about specific things from Latter-day Saint history, and that's something that we wanted to, to talk about today. Yeah. Um, I, I apologize to everyone who's sent us other emails that we haven't responded to. Maybe, you know, we we, we literally can't get to all of them. Um, and that's also a good cover for, I don't know the answer to that, and then we just skip it and move <laughs> on to something else. Like, hopefully... Hopefully someone writes another treatise to us about the proper pronunciation of a Missouri accent. Yeah, we, we received three emails this month. Oh, we just can't get to them. You know what? Let's talk about... Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about something else. Well, what we have received several requests um, uh, to talk about the Mormon battalion. Now, the problem is the people making the request didn't realize. Oh, you that, don't know what you've yeah, done. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like walking up to Richard and saying, "Hey, I heard that Japanese rice tariffs were really high. It, you, do you know anything about that?" And then just the 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 unfolding of years of of, of tariff research comes crashing down on you like a tsunami of useless facts and information that not even the Japanese interior ministry cares about. Uh, it, that's essentially what happens when you ask me about the calling of the Mormon battalion. And the reason is, is because this was actually the topic of your dissertation. At least part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's part of it. It's part of it. You know, as Dr. McInerney would say, that's part of it. Um, and there's kind of a lot there. And so, you know, uh, for those of our listeners who who stuck with us through the through the polyandry, <laughs> makes it sound like it was our own scandal. But um, this is is we're going to this time period that, uh, as we talked about with Joseph Smith's presidential run in a previous podcast that we have an index or uh, I think we have a title though. You can go find it. Um, the. The Latter-day Saints, when it comes to the time of Joseph Smith, at the end of his life, we are looking for a place to leave the United States. Um, in fact, I, I published an article in a, in a collection of, of articles about uh, American expansionism from the uh, University Press of Kansas, um, in, in which the, the whole point of the article is the Latter-day Saints' desperate attempts to get outside of the boundaries of the United States. Um, that that book is called Inventing Destiny, Cultural Explorations of U.S. Expansion. And my article in that book is Safely Beyond the Limits of the United States, The Mormon Expulsion and U.S. Expansion. 
So one thing that we we rarely talk about, um, I, I think Richard's eyes are already glazing over. Do I do I need to mention a treaty or something? Or <laughs> yeah, that'll bring me okay. back. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, uh, we're eventually at the end of this, we're going to talk about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Well, we'll get to it. Well, probably not, but it, that's that's in the it's in the future. That's your tease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I want everyone to know that at some point we'll get to that treaty. Um, so. Uh, it's it's important that you look at the Latter-day Saints leaving the United States from the lens of what's going on inside the rest of the United States. It's very easy to think of the United States as always being the United States. And, you know, if you can recollect back to your your 10th grade history, you know, that you, you remember, you know, the various ways the United States expanded. And Latter-day Saints are trying to leave the United States at the precise time that the United States is going to wildly expand, just right after the United States, the Latter-day Saints leave. I mean, we don't often think about it like, oh, the church moved to Utah. Well, the church moved to Mexico. When they got here, it was Mexico. And it was Mexico still for another year before the ending of the war and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, uh, brought all of that territory in back into the United States. And so we often don't think about the fact that the Latter-day Saints deliberately left the country, but, but they did. And in fact, they, as we pointed out before, they, they're so deliberate about it that while they are very seriously contemplating moving to Texas, they drop that as a plan the moment Texas gets annexed to the United States. And I, I don't remember if we mentioned this in a previous podcast, but Garrett came and spoke to our our ward um, for <laughs> Pioneer Day, and which was, I mean, what an epic fail. <laughs> well, uh, when when you came to speak, it was funny because he was the only speaker, as you could imagine, you'd be able to feel the expanse of time and, <laughs> and space. And, and that, was that a subtle dig on? Yeah, no, that wasn't even subtle. No, yeah. not subtle at all. Well, yeah. no, so Garrett, Garrett was obviously able to speak about Pioneer Day for 30 straight minutes, but we we actually still did have a rest him, and we did the rest him before he spoke. So yeah. sacrament, rest him. then rest him. Yeah, then me. Yeah, which <laughs> which great. I thought was, I mean, talk about a clever way to keep people excited. I mean. Yeah, we're like, look, we, we know that we got to get him going yeah, here. Yeah, this, this is this is going to be bad. You guys just announcing his name on on the, the on the program is enough that everyone glazed over. You know what? Let's have a rest him. Well, but so but we 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 had joked about uh so I I don't know in in many neighborhoods it, it's a tradition to put flags out on major holidays and we had joked that it was funny to put the American flag out on Pioneer Day. When in reality we should put uh, a Mexican flag out on Pioneer Day, yeah, or which would likely not be received very well. It won't well. be received as well, or you know, at least the flag of the kingdom that they created, <laughs> uh, that they flew on Ensign Peak, because they were trying to create their own their own nation at the time. But the 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 reality of the situation is Latter Day Saints are so frustrated um, that even before Joseph Smith is is murdered. By late 1843, Joseph has already made the decision. We are going to have to leave this country. And so they begin all kinds of exploration. Joseph starts the Council of 50, whose purpose it is to try to find where the church is going to move. And then also 
to create that government in that new place they're going to go. They look at various places. They look at Texas, which is an independent republic at the time. Texas is annexed while they are looking at leaving the country, and so they stop thinking about Texas, but they're very seriously considering that. They look at Oregon Territory. Now, Oregon Territory is going to factor prominently in our discussion um, about about the calling of the Mormon Battalion Um, because Oregon Territory, you know, I think most of us have, you know, we got our chops on on Oregon Territory by playing Oregon Trail as kids. Yeah, no, I did. You just died of dysentery. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but Oregon is actually, it's, Half of, you know, it's much of Idaho, all of Washington, all of, you know, present day Oregon. And then that that territory is actually most of what is today, uh, you know, British Columbia in Canada. All of that area is called the Oregon Territory. So when I when we say Oregon, we're not we're not talking about Portland. We're talking about all of it. It's 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 all of that area. And. It is a disputed area. It is jointly occupied by both the United States and and uh, Great Britain. Now, while it's jointly occupied, and while you might have played the game Oregon Trail a lot on your way to Oregon, by the 1840s, there are not very many people, uh, very many white settlers anyway, living in Oregon Territory. Look, eventually many more will move there. But in all of what is, you know, British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, which was all part of Oregon country, Oregon territory, there's roughly 5,000 whites that are living in all of that entire area. So it is not heavily populated. What it is, is it's heavily trapped. Um, There's a lot of, of beaver and other small, you know, animals that are used to make, you know, beaver felt hats that you can then put a seer stone in the bottom of and translate a Book of Mormon with. I mean, it's the fashion of the day, honestly, the beaver hats. And, and, um, there's a reason why, uh, you know, Oregon state's mascot is, is a beaver because, you know, there, there were a lot there, uh, not so many anymore, uh, because of all the trapping that took place. So. Early on, there were clashes, uh, you know, between American and British fur traders and American and British fur trading companies. But there weren't a ton of permanent long-term settlements that were there. The United States and Great Britain create a joint occupation treaty um, that's that's part of what comes out of their 1818 treaty. Now, I wish this treaty, the, the Treaty of 1818, had a a really cool name, and and it was easy to remember. Um, I mean, one well, eight, one eight. Well, it is easy to remember. Yeah, it's kind I of like my bike when it combination. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I just make all the numbers the same. No one will ever <laughs> think to guess that. Um, and and what it did is what it said. Well, we're going to put off the decision about who controls this territory, um, and, and until a later time. And so this massive, massive area and again it's it's british columbia it's washington it's oregon it's idaho that whole area is all occupied and administered both by great britain and by the united states in 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 practical terms there was there were rarely very many conflicts because there were very few people who were there 
And on the ground, you know, most uh, justice was kind of frontier justice because neither side was really was going to, you know, put troops into this 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 jointly occupied territory. So it's a question that's on the back burner. Um, but as as the saints are preparing to leave the United States, it's a question that has gotten very, very, very hot. Um, and, and part of the reason why is is politics. So. Again, I always have to put out the disclaimer. The 19th century world is a world in which political differences were very, very acerbic. They were very angry. They were very divided. And so it's, it's a different world than ours where people, you know, they like, oh, you have this idea. Well, I have this one. You know what? Let's agree to disagree. And they walk their own separate way. In the 19th century, people with political differences often used over-the-top rhetoric condemning people in every possible way for believing the opposite thing. So you'll have to just imagine a world where that's where that takes place. But, but it happened back then. Um, and as the, 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 the time to re-up this treaty with Great Britain approached, there is considerable pressure, especially among the expansionist Democrats, that we we aren't okay with with just re-upping the status quo as it is. There's more and more settlers moving to Oregon. Look, in 1818, there's like four people, and you know, and and, and the Native American tribes that that lived and owned the land living there. there. There's there's almost no one there, and so it's it's you don't want to fight a war over you know like four people, right? But by 1840s, there's, like I said, around 5,000 British and American settlers scattered throughout the area. The uh, 1818 treaty had also established the northern borderline of the United States between Canada, which was Great Britain, part of the British uh, colonies, and, you know, and, and uh, the United States. So if you've ever wondered why that line is so straight, you know, all the way, you know, through North Dakota and Montana, like it's a pretty straight line. That's because they established this 49th parallel as where we'll make the dividing line. Now, again, in 1818, they are making a dividing line on the basis of essentially no settlements. I mean, I, I don't know how many settlements are even on the border today in North Dakota. <laughs> I can't imagine that there are very many. I mean, how many settlements are there in North Dakota? Yeah, I think Bismarck is, is the only one. <laughs> I mean, that's a you know a shout out to to Jed, you know, because he's he's listening and he got other people to listen, although they probably stopped listening because we just criticized North Dakota. But um, yeah, we apologize. North Dakota is full of a lot of people, densely populated, yeah, very densely populated, and everyone who lives there knows that it is. <laughs> um, but that line is a straight line. I mean, it is if, if you're it's one of the easier parts if you're drawing as a kid a map of the United States. One of the easier parts to draw is that upper border of the United States because it's just like, whoop, except for one place, one place uh, uh, that uh, we're going to have to move forward to another treaty. So there were actually some disputes between the United States and Great Britain entering into the 1840s, and a lot of these had to do with these places that weren't heavily settled, 
But as more settlement came to them, there now is a dispute about where is that boundary line. I mean, look, we've got satellites and geopolitical, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, geographical locators. Um, they don't. They have a dude who goes out with like a survey, you know, like, uh, you know, a little tripod. And he's like, OK, and I think this is it. So it, it could easily lead to disputes because the, there's not an easy way to actually mark. I mean, look, anyone who's built a fence in their backyard is well aware it's not as easy to know where the boundary line is as you think there is, right? Um, that probably hit a little too close to home for some of the listeners. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. I expect angry emails from people who were forced to tear their fence down and rebuild it because they were six inches over on their neighbor's property line. Yeah, there's at least one of them. Uh, anyway, um, the, uh, the Webster-Ashburton Treaty... There we go. Now everybody wants that. That we're going to work Webster Ashburton into the uh, into the rotation. Much of, better than the Treaty of eighteen eighteen. Yeah, the Treaty of eighteen eighteen. I mean, it's like they weren't even trying. I mean, it's a much more important treaty because it sets I don't know three thousand miles of border <laughs> between the United States and Canada, which is still the border today. Um, but Wisconsin territory, uh, which you know I have a great affinity for because I served my my mission in Wisconsin. Wisconsin Territory um, in the 1840s included what is today Minnesota. And don't worry, Minnesota, eventually. Uh, do we have any listeners in Minnesota? We do not. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, the we, we do have uh, Doug and Emily, and they've they are you know, they've been to Minnesota. Her family's from Minnesota. Her, right? her family's from Minnesota, so uh, they've they've stayed there. And she's a member of the church? Uh, at the time of this episode, yes. But after she listens to this episode, likely no, likely not. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't listen to the episodes. So we've actually got more time. Uh, we, I, I don't think that they're listeners. But so uh, as more and more people begin to settle in Wisconsin territory, but read Minnesota when I say that, um, eventually Minnesota will become its own territory. So don't worry about it. You, you will get your own territory. But right now, it's part of Wisconsin territory. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of Gopher fans who are very angry about that. We are not part of Wisconsin. Well, for a while you were. Anyway, um, uh, there, there, there's a dispute about where that boundary line actually is because you start going through some thick woods and you run into a bunch of Great Lakes, right? So how do we draw the boundary line across the Great Lakes? 1818 had tried to do it, but in doing so was kind of, you know, cutting through some settlements already. Same thing in Maine. In Maine, they had never fully uh, uh, demarcated the difference between Canada and and Maine. So the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, uh, uh, Lord Ashburton comes uh, uh, to the United States and meets with Daniel Webster of of dictionary fame, but actually he was an amazing, uh, amazingly powerful and and popular politician. Uh, more than just you know a dictionary, he uh, he was uh, a secretary of state um, as well as senator from Massachusetts. And uh, in in this discussion, they they kind of redraw the lines. Uh, one of the one of the fun parts is if you're ever looking, go go get a map of the United States. Um, you know. Go get your globe uh, that everyone has in their home now. We had a globe growing up. Did you have a globe? We did. Yeah, it was a nice yeah. globe. We would play with it so much, spin the world. I thought it helped. It helped us have really good geography. Um, you know, speaking of which, I this le- this last week I had 
and a terrible disappointment in my life. Uh, I love geography because I love history. I love knowing where places are, where people live, things like that. So I always loved geography in school. We start looking at one of my son's grades in his geography class, and they're terrible. I mean, my son, how are you doing so bad? You just took a test on geography, and it, and you, you got a nine out of twenty-five. What? Do you not even know what country you live in? I mean, you should get it like you should get like three of those just by the fact that you live in one of the countries. And and you know, it was one of those cases where the child provided an excuse that as as a parent I immediately rejected and offered no credibility whatsoever. He was like, "Dad, I I dad, I I I don't know what's going on. I I know I'm getting these answers right on these quizzes. I I know the answers." Mike, son, you got a 50% on this one. You got a 30% on this one. You don't know the answers, actually. Whatever you think you know, you don't. So he went in to go meet with his geography teacher. And in fact, someone had joined the class late with a very similar starting last name to my son. So he was right next to my son in the grade book. And the teacher had been entering this other student's grades into my son's grades. <laughs> So I blew him up. I told him that his excuse was a terrible excuse and I was totally wrong. Someday when he listens to this, probably long after I'm dead, he'll realize, you know what? I'm sorry about that. But I'm not going to tell him sorry now because that'll just get him all, you know, get him. Yeah, you don't want him. Yeah, you don't want him to. to I don't think want him. Yeah, I don't want him to think that I love him. <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> obviously I already have. But, but there's actually a little, when you look at the map, there's this little teeny part of Minnesota called called you know the the North Angle that is is not in any way touching the rest of Minnesota. Um, it, it's kind of like the Upper Peninsula of Michigan isn't touching the rest of Michigan. Only this is legitimately in Canada. You have to drive through Canada to get to this this Northwest angle that was part of the, the settlement of the, the Webster Ashburton treaty that uh, America has this little enclave there in Canada to our Canadian listeners. You've probably been thinking we're going to Putin this pretty quick. Our plan is to annex this and to take it back and to claim that this has always been part of Canada. Um, so it's important that, you know, that whole discussion is, is, a, so that those of you who are only lingering on the edge of sleep can blissfully pass through it, but also to understand that, that the Latter-day Saints are leaving the United States at a very volatile time for not only the country politically as we do the run-up to the American Civil War, but to the country internationally with its interactions with both Mexico and with Great Britain. There are active border disputes that are going on at the time. And you're thinking, well, why does that matter? Why do I get? Well, because it's going to affect everything that happens next. Of course, the other place that they consider going to is to Mexico. Um, the various places, they, they at one point talk about settling on the Sea of Cortez, you know, which would be great. They talk about settling in, in San Diego. And as I've expressed multiple times, man, you know, I could be working at BYU San Diego right now. Well, but your your point was that 
they wanted to go to a place that people wouldn't go, right? I know, I know. That's the problem. They were going to go to somewhere where no one else lived. And again, with the Latter-day Saint plans to possibly go to to what was then called California. And California then included all of modern-day California, but also Arizona, half of New Mexico, all of Nevada, all of Utah, part of Colorado. That was all called Upper California. So when, when they talk about California, when they say, oh, we're going to California, they might mean, you know, Parump, Nevada. That, that, they might mean that. Uh, 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 they, they might mean Tonopah. Um, but, you know, it's not exactly San Diego. Unless in K- Do we have a listener in Tonopah? <laughs> we do not. Okay. All right. We, well, I was not expecting. <laughs> we do not. We don't. I've, okay. I, hold on. Let me do uh, Yep. Just checked. We don't. Uh, yeah. Look, if you are a listener in either Tonopah uh, or, or, or Tehachapi, we need you. We need you to let us know. First of all, that you have internet, and second of all, that you listen to this show. Um, but again, in all of that area, the only place of 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 this these upper states of Mexico that were highly populated uh, by by you know non Native Americans is, is actually just New Mexico itself, and even New Mexico is almost entirely Native American. It's just a mestizo population that's intermarried with, with first Spanish and then and then Mexicans. But there there are tens of thousands of those Mexican residents in, you know, in places like Santa Fe and, and Las Cruces and Albuquerque. But in Arizona, I mean, yeah, I mean, Tucson exists, but there's like a hundred people who live in it. And I'm assuming that all of them wish they didn't because air conditioning did not exist. I have a hard time going to Tucson with air conditioning because it's so hot, right? I mean, Phoenix, obviously, you know, are there like little teeny settlements? Sure. But the city, of course, doesn't exist at all. Arizona is, is, has almost no one living in, in, in that. The largest settlement in all of Mexican California, that, that entire geographical area that I'm talking about, not surprisingly, was Los Angeles, right? Los Angeles, this massive city, sprawling highways. Well, in 1845, it had a grand total of 1,200 people living in it. Oh, the, the North Dakota of, yeah, Mex- yeah, of California. Exactly. Well, and that's, that's the reality is these parts of, of Mexico were so geographically isolated from the much more heavily populated central, you know, Mexico, Mexico City, and then further south in Mexico, that development up there was just really, really, really slow. It's hard to envision this because in our minds, what we think is, well, no, California is like loaded with people and everybody wants to live there. But but the estimates are in all of California, Utah, half of Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, and part of New Mexico today. In all of that area, there are fewer than 7,000 Mexicans or American settlers living in that entire area. Now, again, there are hundreds of thousands of Native Americans, but neither the Mexicans nor the Americans are counting them. So, so, it's not that the place is completely uninhabited. Um, it's the fact that 
Mexican imperialism and and American imperialism both follow the same track, and that is, oh, we don't count the Native Americans living there. And so, so the reality is, as Latter-day Saints are looking for places to go, there's the Oregon Territory, which has fewer than 5,000 white settlers. There's this vast northern uh, state of Upper California of Mexico, which has fewer than 7,000 settlers. There are twenty to 25,000 Latter-day Saints living in and around Nauvoo alone, and thousands more that are converted in places in England and branches all over the country. Literally, anywhere the Latter-day Saints go, they are going to not just dwarf the existing population, they are going to double and triple and quadruple it, and they would be all together in a single settlement. So that's something that's very important. I said in a very early podcast, one that you probably didn't listen to, or if you did listen to, you aren't listening to this one because you gave up after you listened to that one, that the gathering of the Latter-day Saints is something that was is both a, it's a blessing and a curse for the Latter-day Saints in their history. The very fact that the saints gather together provides them all kinds of social and religious support that they wouldn't have otherwise. But the very fact that they gather together makes them a threat, right? If if I live in, in Illinois, I mean, look, Latter-day Saints do not make up, you know, a huge percentage of the population of Illinois in, in 1840. It's tough to, you know, be precise because Illinois is, it is the promised land. I mean, it's, it is where people are moving in in the 1830s and 1840s. So so why are they why are they moving there? What's, what's going on? Illinois has really I mean, I don't know if you've ever driven through Illinois. Like mostly when you think of Illinois, you think of Chicago. If you've ever driven from Nauvoo to Chicago, what did you see? North Dakota. <laughs> Again, a call out to Jed. No, but what you saw was was uh Farms, farms, right? It's farms like as far as Illinois is incredibly agrarian. Everywhere outside of, everywhere outside of Chicago, well, the, it's very good farmland. It receives enough rainfall that that you know the crops grow really well. Has a long enough growing, so so it's kind of like a, it's a breadbasket of sorts for for the nation, um, and on top of that. On one side, it's bounded by the Mississippi River. So you have to look at early American settlement patterns in terms of where is the highway system. Well, there isn't a highway system. The highways of early America are the rivers, the lakes, um, and and the ocean. And, And the reason why is, look, okay, so I have 50 acres of corn well, I, I live, if I have a 50-acre farm, I'm probably a mile away from my closest neighbor who, guess what, is also growing corn. And, and, and my neighbor to the south of me a mile away is also growing corn. Literally, everyone's growing corn. So, so what am I going to do? do? Do you know how much corn, 50 acres of corn is, even with their... You know, this is the Idaho, you know, farmer in me. Like, even with their poor crop rotational practices that they didn't understand. You know, I mean, right. The, the reality is how many wagon loads. 
This, this is before railroads are in the area. The only way you can get bushels and bushels and bushels of corn to any market, because, I mean, look, you can't, you can set up a corn stand on the side of the highway all you want, but your neighbor who also has 50 acres of corn probably isn't going to buy any from you. So the big issue for farmers in the United States is always the same thing over and over and over again. How do I get my crop to market? That that argument actually leads to uh, something we'll talk about when we do some American history podcasts. The, the Whiskey Rebellion in America is, is directly tied uh, to this, this rebellion that happens during Washington's presidency to farmers' desires to try to get their crops to a market. Well, the whole western half of Illinois is bounded by the Mississippi River. On the eastern side, well, and the, and the southern side as well of Illinois with the river, and on the eastern side you have, you have the Great Lakes, right? Which allow for even further transport, which becomes an even bigger deal as things like uh, the, the Erie Canal are opened up, right? There, as railroads begin to expand as well, all of these things make it, you know, just a prime location to go. Um, I, I was reading the letters of uh, a man living in Ohio, writing back to his his family, not not a Latter Day Saint, writing back to his family and telling him of his grand dreams. Like he's living in Ohio, he has a nice farm, it produces well, and and he's writing to his parents and he says, "If I can just get to Illinois, I mean, the land is cheap." It's super productive. Yeah, it's a long ways away, but I can get three or four times the size of, of property that I can get here in Ohio. And so that that westward expansion is always, I mean, anyone who's been in the market for a house lately is well aware, you know, location, 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 right? The, the reality is the exact same size house in San Francisco and in Tonopah are not going to be the same price because location matters. And so these newly expanding areas that didn't have the same infrastructure, if you moved west, you moved to Illinois, you get really good farmland, you get it fairly inexpensive. The problem is it's incredibly isolated and there aren't any services. But as more and more people move there, well, then that land price is going to go up and up and up and up. And then people are going to start looking even across the river into Iowa territory and beyond. This is really the story of expansion in the United States generally. People continually move west because land is the driver of American both social standing as well as the economy. The United States is an agrarian country at the time. I, Almost everyone farms. Yes, there are some minor factory stuff in the cities, and yes, there are people who fish, and and you know you can send me angry emails about your grandfather who was a rope maker in Salem, but did he have something to do with the witch trial? See, now I've got questions back for you. But um, the, the reality is most Americans get their living in some way through farming, and 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 that land ownership is seen as as what is. Uh, what is essential to being a real American, to being an independent American. And so if you have to have land, both to make money and to be socially acceptable, 
Well, you can, you just like this fellow I was talking about, you can buy a small farm in Ohio that has more of the accoutrements of the East in it, or I can buy a giant farm for the same price in Illinois. And yeah, it's going to be hard scrabble. I'm going to have to, you know, cut down a bunch of trees and, you know, you know, have a tough time, you know, getting things to work at first. But the long-term payout is so much more production on that land. And so Illinois is just, it's a booming population. But the Latter-day Saints aren't moving to Illinois because the, the cropland is just so incredible. Uh, they're moving to Illinois, if you recall, because they're being murdered in Missouri. Uh, Missouri shares a gigantic border with Illinois. And the Latter-day Saints from western Missouri are driven by an extermination order, by murders, by uh, assaults, to, to flee from Missouri into Quincy, Illinois at first, and then they eventually move up to Nauvoo. So Latter-day Saint uh, settlement in Illinois doesn't follow the standard economic pattern of, you know what, let's move a little bit further west, let's move a little bit further west, let's move... It follows the pattern of we need to go somewhere where we're not being murdered, which is a different it's a different demographic settlement plan. And um, so what that means is in most states, as as this expansion goes, because it's coming east to west and the population and the immigration to the country is coming east to west, it means that your eastern areas of states are populated long before your western areas of states, right? I mean, Cleveland is is much bigger earlier on than Gary, Indiana. I, I, you know, the, 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 it, it means that when you got very large populations, they were usually in the eastern portion of states. And then slowly, again, because land is more expensive in the eastern part, you move further to the western part of the state, and as land, that land becomes more expensive, you leave the state entirely and go somewhere else. St. Louis is much bigger than, than, than Independence or, or the area that would become Kansas City, right? Because settlement is in St. Louis first. In in. Illinois, it kind of starts that way. Chicago is very much an up-and-coming city there in, in eastern Illinois. And then all of a sudden, you have tens of thousands of settlers who move to Nauvoo, to the extreme western portion of Illinois, not through the natural process of, you know what, land's a little cheaper, a little further west, I'll move a little further west, I'll move a little further west, I'll move a little... No, they move there in mass, and not because land is cheaper there, but because that's where the church is headquartered. So if you are an Illinoisan, you go from having around 100 people living in the Commerce slash Nauvoo area in, in 1839 to having 20,000 people living there four years later. Now, percentage-wise, for the state of Illinois, that is not a huge number. I mean, it's it's substantial. I don't want to say it's not substantial. The estimates are roughly around, I mean, somewhere around 600,000 people are living in Illinois by 1844. It, it is rapidly expanding. By the time of the American Civil War, there's going to be almost 2 million people living in it. I mean, it is... It, it is a rapidly expanding uh, state, and, and it is, it's the booming state of, of the North all throughout this time period. 
So Latter-day Saints don't make up a, a huge minority, somewhere around three, three and a half percent of the state. But they all, not all, but they mainly live in one place, which means that they have a profound impact locally, on local politics, on local economies, that it is not a natural progression, right? I mean, the, 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 these other cities that are growing up like Warsaw and, and Carthage, you know, they're going from having 200 to 300 and 300 to 400 and 400 to 500 and Nauvoo 20,000. I mean, it, it is it, it is a sudden influx of, of people, which engenders a great deal of resentment, especially if when they first start arriving, your response as a politician is, we shouldn't let any of these Mormons move here and then 20,000 of them move there. Surprisingly, they aren't then willing to vote for you because you've been on record talking about how you don't want them to exist. So the gathering of Latter-day Saints together really is one of the things that is both a strength and viewed as a threat from the outside. And, you know, it's really interesting, right, that the, the arguments of locals in Hancock County about how Latter-day Saints were, you know, that they were clannish and that they were, you know, uh, destroying the local economy and driving up land prices and, 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 you know, diverting the river traffic to their town rather than theirs and able to control the local elections because they had so many votes. What's, what's really fascinating is if you go back and you read many of the articles that are published surrounding Nauvoo, after 1999, when the announcement is made, they're going to rebuild the temple in Nauvoo. Now, now Nauvoo prior to that, you know, it has like 1,200 people who live in it. And the reaction of many of the people in in early 2000s Nauvoo, you know, so 160 years removed from the persecution of Latter-day Saints when they settled there, Frankly, it's it's almost similar to reading a 19th century newspaper. Well, I don't want all these Mormons moving here because then we might have a Mormon mayor. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that's called democracy, actually. Uh, there is outrage in the city that uh, to build the, rebuild the Nauvoo Temple, the, the local closed um, uh, Catholic academy that was run by, by some nuns that those nuns sold the property to the church to, to, to make way to build the temple. And, and you read all of these accounts from local residents, I feel so betrayed that the nuns sold the property to the Like, the school was already closed. And the, the nuns, when they're asked for comment, are like, I, we, we just sold it because we, we needed the money and we were done. We were moving somewhere else. I mean, even today, Nauvoo struggles with... Um, uh, with a population. I mean, the last time I was there, someone told me they just fell below a thousand. So the population hasn't been booming the way that people thought it would. But, but that reaction to Latter-day Saints being involved in the 21st century was a pretty, it was a pretty interesting thing that we, we think we've come a really long way in our you know, our progression and our tolerance of various different cultures and ethnicities and religions. And all it really takes is for one of those more despised religions, ethnicities, whatever, to move in mass to a small town. And very quickly, many of the same arguments that were made back then are they, they take back center stage. Uh, 
Now, why do, why does all of this matter? You know, as we talked about the martyrdom, if you go back to the martyrdom podcast, we, we talk about several of the things leading up to that and Joseph Smith's run for president. But the, the reality is that the decision to leave the United States isn't just coming from the fact that there is increasing local opposition to the Latter-day Saints. It's also coming from the fact that there is apparent, at, at best, apathy on the part of the United States government, but a growing sense that the United States government isn't just passively doing nothing, but that they are actively doing something, and that something is negative. We all know the, the story of Joseph Smith talking to Martin Van Buren, who says, he, you know, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. But the reality is, as as tensions increase, and then especially after Joseph is and Hiram are murdered, and violence begins to become widespread against the Latter-day Saints in Western Illinois, and there's no federal intervention, that reports start to leak out to Brigham Young that it's not just an apathy on the part of the federal government, but the federal government is actually taking an active part or plans to take an active part against the Latter-day Saints. So fast forward, I mean, I know at this point you've already fast forwarded the podcast, but you know, we get to Joseph Smith's murder in 1844. One of the things that Brigham Young is adamant that he's going to do is he's going to maintain the religion that Joseph Smith created. So even though people are uncomfortable with work for the dead, Brigham Young's going to maintain work for the dead. They might be uncomfortable with uh, with uh, plural marriage, Brigham Young's going to maintain plural marriage. They might be uncomfortable with Joseph Smith's teachings about progressing to become like God. Brigham Young's going to maintain it. As, as Brigham says, to carry out Joseph's measures is sweeter than honey to me. Um, one of those measures was that Joseph was planning to leave the country. And now that falls to Brigham. And it falls to him in a way that is not, you know... It, Obviously, it's not an easy way because there was not widespread violence against Latter-day Saints in Illinois while Joseph Smith was alive. Really, the killing of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith is the beginning of the more widespread violence against Latter-day Saints. For Brigham Young, it, it's it's a much more it's a much bigger reality. You have Latter-day Saint settlements in 1845 that are being you know, uh, regularly burned, looted, and then eventually you have Edmund Durfee, a, a, settle, a settler in, in an outlying area outside of Nauvoo, who's who's murdered by the mob. They set his his barn on fire, and when he you know runs outside, they shoot him in the back and kill him. You'll be surprised to find that no one's brought to justice for that. But um, the the violence is getting is, is such that even if they hadn't already decided that they were going to do what Joseph told them to do, and that's leave the country, that there's just this greater impetus to go. Now, we've read some of those quotes before um, uh, about that, but just you know, as a refresher, right? you have, you have people uh, like John Taylor talking about getting out of the country. One of the things, you know, his quote um, in the Council of 50, in regard to the situation of the world as it now exists, I don't care a damn. Because they are as corrupt as the devil. 
have no benefit from the laws of the land. And the only reason why they don't cut our throats is because they dare not. As Brother Heber C. Kimball says, I don't care how often the bucket is turned up. Some cry out that it will bring persecution. So, so as Taylor's talking about this, you know, they're saying, well, you know, we need to make sure we don't speak out against what, what's being done to us because that will, that will make people even more mad and they'll, they'll try to persecute us. And John Taylor, you know, with a bullet in the back of his knee from Carthage, uh, you know, walking with a cane because of the attempted murder that has taken place against him, again, for which no one will be convicted. No one's going to to go to jail for attempting to murder John Taylor. There's only a hundred plus witnesses, but hey, um, uh, he's he he's he's done with it all. He has reached that breaking point. Some cry out that it will bring persecution, but they cannot lie about us or persecute us worse than they have done. And I go in for whipping the scoundrels when they come into our midst. And if any of them come near me, I will use my cane to them. And I want my brethren to do likewise. So, he, you know, you can almost see him waving his cane over his head when he says this. He then goes on to talk about, I mean, part of this justification for the reason why they're going to leave the country. We know that we have no more justice here, no more justice than we could get at the gates of hell. And the only thing we have to do is to take care of ourselves. People talk about law and justice, and I go in for giving them the same kind of justice they give us. I go in for a company being sent out to find a place where we can establish the kingdom, erect the standard, and dwell in peace and have our own laws. But there's a lot of other things that are that are going on there as they're looking at these different places. And so um, part of what I want to talk about in the next episode, now that we've kind of laid the groundwork there, and um, it, what I want to talk about is the specific reports that Brigham Young is receiving in Nauvoo that caused this already terrible situation to seem so much worse. Because already... You have this violence, you have this, these, these anti-Mormon mobs, these anti-Mormon committees, this, this kind of lawlessness going on. And then he's receiving reports from places like Washington, D.C. that make the matter appear to be even more stark. And so that's what we're going to talk about on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.